Hi there, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Telstra Behind the Mic. You don't need me to tell you that COVID's had an incredible impact on all aspects of society. The economy, health, education, but it's also had an incredible impact on the arts industry. And perhaps in the field of the arts, it's an impact that runs wider and deeper than most of us might think. Well, today's guest is perfectly suited to explain to us the impact that COVID has had on one of Australia's best known and most loved artistic institutions. Libby Christie is the current executive director of the Australian Ballet. It's a role she took up in 2013 prior to her work at the Tutu Factory. That's my name, not hers. She held senior roles at the Australian Council for the Arts, which is the Australian government's national arts funding body, and was the managing director at the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. But before joining the arts sector, Libby held a number of senior executive roles in information, communications, telecommunications companies, including Optus, Telstra and TMP Worldwide. She's also spent a fair whack of time in the adult education, tertiary education sector. A woman of many talents, Libby Christie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Um, we'll talk mostly today about the Australian Ballet and how you've transitioned through the, the COVID challenges, but I wanted to go back a little bit earlier in your past because... What I found interesting was you hold these high-profile roles in Telstra, where you were managing director of business, government relations, that sort of stuff. Other telecoms, sort of you know, new tech. You go to Monster, which was an online recruitment agency. So you seem to be heading in a certain direction. Then you pivot into the the uh, the Sydney Symphony. Was 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 that a challenge going from tech, new tech, and, and seemingly even more radical roles within that space to something as old-fashioned and stayed as the Sydney Symphony? <laughs> well, it's, yes, it was a challenge for me. It was probably a challenge for Sydney Symphony as well. But it, it happened at a time when I had been, as you say, working in tech for quite some time, travelling the world, to be honest, and getting a bit fed up with never being home and thinking about what I'd do next after a restructure at the company I was working for at the time. And I'd always been a great lover of classical music and the Sydney Symphony. I'm one of those people who went to youth concerts and hung out as a kid uh, listening to classical music, uh, live classical music, and really thinking the orchestra was a great, uh, really great asset for the country. And I was asked if I'd take on the role of leading the company at a time when it was divesting from the ABC and setting up as a separate corporate entity. So there were some skills that I had that I brought to the Sydney Symphony. And certainly there was a lot that I learned from the Sydney Symphony and the musicians about the arts. So uh, it was a wonderful time. And um, I decided I'd stay in the arts. What, what, what sort of skills do you feel you'd, you'd honed in that more purely corporate, especially telecoms, digital world that you brought across? Well, specifically digital was all about um, how to run more efficient digitally-based back office operations in an organisation so that it could focus its resources on what it did best, which was in that case was wonderful classical music. But we needed a billing system. We needed corporate systems and efficiencies that meant that the money that we had, which in a not-for-profit is all about the arts, was not being used up uh, running the organisation from a business point of view um, and that we were as efficient as we could be. So we introduced new billing system. We introduced new CRM systems. Um, you know, we were much better at data collection and use of data for um, for our advertising and for our uh, marketing activities. Yeah, this is what I find fascinating about a place like the Australian Ballet or the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. And I see an analogy there. I've been, I was on the Senate of the University of Sydney for quite a few years, and I do a bit of work these days 
with the Sydney Swans. Now, a sporting team like the Swans or an educational institution like the University of Sydney have these fascinating sort of dual roles. I mean, they're, they're big businesses. They are financial organisations that need to be run properly. At the same time, they have a very public-facing role that's not immediately business-like. And it's, I, I, I joke that the Swans are a, a, they're like a, an ASX company that has 23 AGMs in a row every Saturday at 5.30 in the afternoon. And these are really public AGMs, and you can lose your AGM by 90 points if you don't have a good AGM. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar with the university, similar with something like the Australian Ballet. What's the, what is the challenge? What is, what is that challenge like where you obviously have to run it well? The organisation could go bankrupt if it's not run well, but at the same time, its real role is to dance and perform and, and, and engage people in that aspect of its, of its operations. Yes, look, you're so correct uh, in, in drawing that out because the Australian Ballet um, is primarily funded through our commercial activity. That's selling tickets. So our government funding, which we're very grateful for, is between 10 and 12% of our turnover each year. Um, the vast majority of our income is earned from selling tickets to the shows that we present. Um, we have a big philanthropy team. We have a wonderful sponsorship team. Um, and Telstra, of course, is our principal partner and has been for about 34 years mm. now, which is extraordinary um, and so valuable to us. And interestingly, the Australian Ballet also, thanks to some uh, very clever work for some of our previous board members, owns a car park in the building that we own in Melbourne and we run a commercial car park. So we're very commercial in the way we operate. And and I like to say to everybody in the company, forget this not-for-profit business. We're a not-for-loss company. Um, the idea is that as much of our resources as we can, we put into artistic product and artistic vibrancy, um, but we need to support that with our commercial activities. So it means that I work really closely with the artistic director when we're setting seasons for the future to make sure that the the um, work that we're doing and we're presenting to the public and selling tickets for is of an artistic standard that you'd expect from the National Ballet Company and is up there with the best in the world, that our dancers are developed to the stage and standard of professional excellence that we'd want. But at the same time, our audience members, and we have a lot of, we have about 300,000 audience members a year, um, find the product that we're taking to them attractive and that we're pricing it properly that we're presenting at times that we're most accessible to the public, that we want to attract to the company, and that we're creating audiences of the future, not just for today. And that is looking at kids and what we can do to bring new audiences in to see ballet. When it comes to the the, the annual timetable of something like the Australian Ballet, what do you, I mean, you're busy all the time, you're working hard all the time, but when when are the peak times? When, when, is, when is the next year's program put together, when do you really sell the bulk of the tickets? What, what's the sort of timing flow? I'm then going to lead to how did COVID impact that, but ignoring COVID for the moment, what's, it, what's the sort of ebb and flow of a typical year for the ballet? It's really interesting you say that because we, we operate in about three or four different timeframes at any time. So right now, so here we are in July, we have well and truly finished programming 2021. Mm-hmm. And, and so my phone hasn't rung, so I can no. assume I've, I've, I'm not getting a gig, am I? <laughs> not, okay. not in 21, Good. Adam, but keep trying. Thank you. Um, so we will take our 2021 season out to our subscribers and offer them to uh, the opportunity to buy a subscription for 2021 in a couple of months' time in September this year. 
and half of our audience members are subscribers. So by the end of this year, hopefully we will have sold half of our tickets to next year. And we're already well and truly programming 2022 and even 2023. So we work in a number of timeframes, but we sell half of our tickets to the future year, the next year, in the prior year. Mm -hmm. And then next year, 2021, when we're performing the 2021 season, we'll also be out in the market selling tickets to people who just want to come along and see one show. Um, and so that's that's a tried and true model for us. We're very fortunate that we have half of our audience as loyal subscribers who wait each year for the September announcement of the next year's season and the phones ring hot on the day that we announce the season with people resubscribing, which is fantastic. Okay, so that day in September, things really start flying for the next couple of months. So when COVID comes along, which as a generalisation is sort of early Feb till the end of Feb and things start to get very real in mm. in March. Can you remember, how did it manifest itself for your organisation? When did you first think of this as something that might in some small way impact your operations? And what, did, you, did you drop one show or did someone say they weren't coming from overseas? And then how did the dominoes fall before the, the, the full impact was felt? You know, we were watching closely, and I don't think anybody believed how quickly this would affect companies like ours, um, because one of the issues that we were aware of pretty quickly was that the government wasn't happy with people getting together in tight spaces. We were actually we actually had just started our first Melbourne season at the beginning of March, and we were performing our third performance. Uh, which was a Saturday evening, and one of our musicians who was performing in the pit said they had a bit of a cold, should they come in? And we said, well, no, they shouldn't come in. And that really meant that the orchestra couldn't perform in the pit. And then very quickly, the we were in Victoria at the time, the Victorian government said, uh, we don't want people socially uh, gathering in large groups. Mm. We want people social distancing and we, I remember I had a whole day's conversation with the Arts Centre Melbourne where we were performing, which was a Sunday, and we both agreed that we needed to cancel the rest of the season because inviting people to come into a theatre, sit shoulder to shoulder, um, the Arts Centre Melbourne has a capacity of just over 2,000 people. It just didn't seem a sensible thing to do. So we cancelled that season. Now, At, th at that point, are you thinking it's unfortunate that that show has been cancelled, but... All the other shows we've got planned for the months after, they'll all still in your mind go ahead? or At, at that stage, we, th we were not sure what was going to happen next. And after the Melbourne season, we planned to be in Sydney in April. And so what followed was lots of discussions with the Opera House about whether to cancel those seasons. And then we were due to be back in Melbourne and then we were due to be in Adelaide. So as the years progressed, we've been gradually cancelling our seasons and, of course, it's not just cancelling the shows, but it's refunding the mm. tickets that people have bought previously and also not being on sale. So, you know, not there, there were two immediate impacts. The first was we were not performing, but the second one was we had a huge amount of cash going out as we refunded the tickets that people had bought to our shows. And that's continuing. Um, we are about to cancel the... August-September seasons in Melbourne and we're looking at what we'll do with Sydney for the 
um, November, December seasons. So, so give us an. We'll talk about the depth of the impact soon, but give us an, an idea about the breadth of the impact, both within your organisation and the broader arts community. Obviously, there's a lot of ballet dancers who are not working in those shows, and I would immediately think there's a lot of musicians as well. But when you start to factor in the people who work part time at the Opera House selling the tickets, etc., how how broadly does something like this impact? Hugely broadly, if that that's not good grammar, but mm. you know what I'm saying. Yes, it's the dancers, it's the people who, and it could equally be musicians, it's the people who work with those people as artistic staff. Um, let me give you the ballet as an example. Mm. There's the dancers. There are the ballet staff who coach the dancers. There's our big medical team who keep the dancers fit and active. Um, we have a music team who rehearse with the dancers and play the piano for the dancers. Uh, and then we have the production people who make the costumes, who set the costumes on stage, the lighting people, um, the people who, uh, marketing team who sell our tickets, the um, finance people who back all of that up. Every part of our organisation has been affected. Doesn't mean they're not working, but they're not working normally. Um, and what we've decided to do at the Australian Ballet very quickly was do our best to protect the careers of the dancers. They might not be able to perform on stage and we might not be able to sell tickets, but dancers, like any elite athlete, need to keep training every day to keep their standards up. And dancers also have relatively short careers. You, you don't see too many uh, dancers on stage over the age of about 40 so their short careers, they give us so much of their youth to, uh, to enable this art form to thrive and prosper. And, and the Australian ballet and Australian dancers are particularly um, well regarded internationally. So we're grateful to them for what they give us from, in terms of their lives and their careers. So we wanted to do our best to make sure their careers weren't damaged during this period. So we've kept our dancers doing class every day, and that means... The ballet staff have been working with them. The musicians who make the music during class have been working. The physiotherapy team and the medical team have been working with the dancers every day, but the whole thing is being virtual. Uh, we haven't been able to do, until the last couple of weeks, mm. to have any dancers in our studios. Um, so from that date in March, we went immediately to a digital presentation of the company which was just extraordinary. In, in terms of that, uh, uh, are some dancers as people better suited to, I'll be fine, I'll just do this at home, I'll, I've got the discipline, I'll, it'll be virtually the same, forgive the pun, as being there in the studio and others would find that more challenging? Look, I think everybody's had their their challenges. We Before we, um, or as we set this up, we checked that all the dancers had the right technology, they had the right um internet access at home. Uh, we provided everybody with access to the technology we were using, which was Microsoft Teams, made sure they're all um, trained on it. Uh, we made sure that everybody uh, had given good consideration to their home environment in terms of um, OH&S, so that everybody had thought through safety and um, occupational health. We gave all the dancers a big square of tarket, which is the floor that dancers perform on so that they were on the right sort of surface. 
um, and we've scheduled class for them every day. Now, um, it's been amazing watching the dancers do class. They're very disciplined and they, they tuned into class every day and went through class with our ballet coaches and ballet staff. And, and as I said, the uh, medical team uh, have consulted with them on a regular basis as well. But the dancers have also done quite a lot of um, posting of some of their experiences mm. from home, which have been really quite funny. You can see dancers dodging light fittings in their homes. You can see see the dogs that they have in their apartments and homes looking curiously at the dancers and uh, wondering what on earth is going on. Um, a number of our dancers have got kids, so you can see them negotiating kids and, and uh uh, come, some of the kids, of course, have been homeschooling during this time, so it's the same challenges that everybody has had, but really on steroids, given what dancers do to work from home. It's very physical. You've also branched out, not just that the, the dancers haven't just gone virtual in their own coaching. What I found fascinating about the whole COVID experience for so many different organisations was that moment of pivot. Your organisation pivoted not just in terms of the way of training your dancers, but also seeing digital as even more of a communication line. And the association with Telstra, I imagine, might have helped sort of, you know, fashion your thinking in that direction. Tell us a little bit about that that pivot moment for the ballet. Yes, um, it, we did pivot and we pivoted to almost an entirely digital presentation of everything that we do. So in addition to the dancers and the staff of the company who've kept together through... Um, thanks to the technology and telecommunications that's there um, keeping us connected, we decided that we would make sure that our audience, which, as I said before, is very strong, very loyal, very large audience for the Australian ballet, we didn't want to deprive them of ballet for the time that we were out of theatres. So fortunately, we have a lot of recorded content, um, wonderful ballets that we've performed previously and recorded uh, to a high-quality digital recording standard, and we decided that we would offer the general public, free of charge, a ballet season every two weeks. And we would present through our uh, website and through YouTube um, ballet seasons for of our most loved and classical works. So our first season, which was back in March when we couldn't get into the theatre, mm was a, a digital season of The Sleeping Beauty and over 18,000 people tuned into that. Wow. It actually caused our website to crash <laughs> immediately, but we very quickly realigned our servers and got on top of that. But it, it shows that people were frustrated that they couldn't come to see us in theatres and they were very happy to tune in to watch ballet online. It's a completely different experience, of course, but in some ways it's great. You actually get to see the dancers up close closer than you would if you were sitting at the in the back of a theatre. Uh, and we've enhanced those digital seasons with interviews with the dancers. So not only do have you got the opportunity to actually sit and watch the ballet, but you can actually hear from the dancers that you see danced, dancing in that ballet about what, what it was like. And David McAllister has been very generous in talking about the background to those productions. And our music director, Nicolette Freyon, has talked about the music of ballet. So people have been able to experience not just the performance, but actually they've been able to get behind the scenes. Well, in fact, David McAllister's gone one step further on Instagram. Here's a little clip from uh, something posted called Dancing with David. This is the artistic director of the Australian Ballet himself sharing some intimate hits on how to uh, 
how, how to dance at the elite level. Hi everyone, my name's David McAllister and I'm here at the Zembelli studio at the Primrose Potter Ballet Centre, the Australian Ballet's home. Um, and we thought there's a lot of times where you're going to be sitting on the couch. And I know myself, after I've done a bit of Netflix watching or watching the ABC, um, I want to get up and move around. So we're going to give you a few little helpful things that you can do in your lounge room or even by the kitchen bench to get that blood moving uh, before your next bout of binge watching. So here we go, we're gonna start with the plie. So if you start with your toes facing forward like normal people, um, and then you just slowly turn out from the top of your legs to, so you get into a nice sort of 10 to two type position. And then we're gonna take our arm. So we're gonna hold onto our bench or our bar or whatever you have at home. And we're gonna take the arm to first, which is right in front of you. My ballet teacher used to say, it's like holding a big watermelon in front of you. So you have your arm there and then you take it out to the side. There you go. It's just like holding a big watermelon according to the great man. We'll have you on stage soon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were quite a few people holding onto the bar during and after COVID. We've all been on a learning journey. What other stuff have you, have, have you pivoted to digitally, Libby? Yeah, well, our, our adult ballet classes is something that's pivoted to digital as well. So um, we have had for quite a few years now a steady stream of people who uh, may have learnt to dance as kids and wanted to keep doing ballet classes as adults or even people like me occasionally um, who've never done ballet but decided that it's about time I learned a bit more about it and done our adult ballet classes. Well, of course, we couldn't continue those mm -hmm. once uh, the restrictions began. And so we, we pivoted to online adult ballet classes. And that's been very successful. Um, we've had a lot of people. I think the first week we went to online ballet classes, we had over 30,000 people wow. who tuned in to those adult ballet classes. And that's settled down now, so we've got uh, a group of people who've just tuned in occasionally, but now we've got more uh, another group of people who are regularly doing um, adult ballet classes with us, and, and that's given us the opportunity to um, even showcase some of our principal dancers. So Amber Scott, who's one of our lovely, uh, really extraordinary principal dancers, she did a, um, a masterclass with the adult ballet class students last week, which was really popular. And when else would you have had a chance, I think, to have mm. a masterclass with Amber Scott, except thanks to coronavirus? But um, that was, that's been extraordinarily successful as well. And the interesting thing about those classes now for us is that previously you had to physically come into a ballet studio to do them, but now we can offer these classes to people anywhere in the country, anywhere, in fact, anywhere in the world, so um, it's opened up a much broader audience for adult ballet classes than we had previously had. What, what, it, 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 there are other programs you do, like the mentoring, the, the virtual mentoring program. Mm, mm. That must be challenging because that, that's more from what I used to go to visit schools and ballet schools one-on-one. -on -one. Has that migrated online as well? Yes. Um, each year we, thanks to Telstra, and Telstra's support, we have always done a regional tour and the Australian Ballet covers as much of the country as we can in um, each year and, and, and over three or four years we've covered the whole country. Um, and as we go into regional communities, we always make contact with local ballet schools, we invite the kids who are learning ballet to come and do class with us or to watch us doing class and, of course, that stopped as well. So our regional tour this year couldn't happen so what we did is we, with, with Telstra's help, we reached out to ballet schools in regional centres and we paired up students in those schools with a mentor coach 
from the Australian Ballet. And those coaches have made contact with these kids who are learning ballet and coached them, given them mentoring sessions online. And that's something we would never have been able to do normally. And those kids would have not had that one-on-one coaching and even friendship, I guess, with an Australian ballet dancer. Uh, it's more than just coaching. It's actually setting uh, kids' sights uh, on a possible career in ballet, and they're actually getting to interact with a real ballet dancer, which has been something quite unique. Okay, we've been going this, through this for a few months now. What do you think's the ongoing impact of this for the Australian Ballet? What sort of changes that have been forced upon you or opportunities that you've realised do you think might become you know, part and parcel of this wonderful Australian institution going forward? I think we will be a lot more flexible with how and when and where we interact with people, whether it's our own people or audience members. You know, we're anticipating that when we do get back into theatres, that there'll be some members of our audience who feel more vulnerable than others who won't want to come back into the theatre. And so we're looking at whether we can offer in parallel the opportunity to buy a ticket and come into the theatre or to maybe buy a ticket and see us virtually uh, as we're performing live to give people the opportunity to continue that virtual experience if that makes them feel safer and it's what they want. I mean, we're very, very keen to get the dancers back physically in studio and physically on stage. That's why they joined the company. It's what ballet is all about. And we know our audiences are really keen to see us back on stage But as I said, we know that we can do it virtually. We know we can mentor kids. We know we can provide seasons to people through digital technology. So that will now be part of our our kit bag, I guess, of how we deliver ballet to the people of Australia. And as the national company, it's opened up borders to us, essentially, that were difficult for us to traverse previously because if physically we had to get out and do a regional tour mentor kids in regions, it meant we could only cover as few at a time, whereas this means we can actually get out to more people. Um, Our education program, which takes ballet out to schools, which was through a team of people who covered the country and about 20,000 kids a year, has now been able to uh, pivot, that Mm. lovely word, pivot to online delivery and cover more schools and even coach teachers in how to deliver our program in their own schools. So it's taught us how to actually broaden our reach using digital technology. And and, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine also in the same way you're looking at new ways of projecting out, when it comes to bringing in, I would imagine, you know, potentially recruiting amongst people to fill a spot in the ballet, at least the first couple of levels of contact could be done digitally. There'd be the potential for, you know, gifted teachers and dancers from around the world to conduct a one-off master class or exchange of ideas with your people now using technologies that, you know, 12 months ago, people might have been a little bit hesitant to engage with. Is there is there the potential for that side of the coin as well? Yes, to a degree. Um, there are some, uh, as we plan to return to stage, there are some ways that we can work with international ballet coaches and teachers who are teaching particular productions to us that we can do digitally. Um, I know that a lot of the coaches are very keen to come back in physically, Mm. but we'll be able to, as you say it, and we'll be able to mix and match. Um, We've proved that we can do it. You you talked about how quickly COVID impacted you. Now, how, how deeply? I mean, how significant 
an impact on the ability of the organisation to operate is, is something like this? It's huge. Um, we were first, we, we say in the performing arts, we were first out, first impacted, and we'll be last back. We know that. But that's fair enough. I mean, obviously, we want to protect our own people and we want to protect our audiences. But even with no limitation on the number of people who can gather, if social distancing is still applied to theatres, we can't operate financially sustainably um, in with limited seats to sell in a theatre mm. due to social distancing. So we just have to wait. Um, we'll wait for as long as we have to. It's a very been a very expensive time for us, um, basically with no cash coming in and the expenses that we've got. Uh, we're going to be spending a lot of our reserves this year. Um, the companies, for the first time, had to take out a bank loan to actually cover some of our expenses. But we've been very, very well supported by our sponsors who've continued to be loyal to us. Telstra in particular have been wonderfully helpful to us, both maintaining Telstra's level of support, but also providing us with support for our digital and technology needs during this time. And we've got some wonderfully generous patrons who are philanthropic towards us. Um, we're very confident that as we go out and talk about our 2021 season, that our subscribers will be really excited by what we've got to offer next year and will come back and support us in theatres. And we look forward to actually recovering from what's been just um, a completely uh, impossible year this year. But uh, it, it has been very expensive. I think the arts is what makes us into a, um, a well-rounded um, and uh, valuable community to live in. The arts reflect who we are back to ourselves in so many ways, whether it's for the Australian Ballet celebrating the physical prowess and extraordinarily excellent standards that we see with our Australian dancers in the Australian Ballet performing Australian productions that we can be proud of that set us on the world stage, or whether it's theatre, which is tackling the big issues that we face today and reflecting those on stage and making us think. Um, the arts is just so important to actually uh, reflect back who we are and make us value the communities that we live in. And if all we were worried about was commercial activities, if that was all that turned us on as human beings, we'd be pretty shallow people. I think the arts help us think about who we are. And as I said, they, they actually provide us with a quality of life that I think all of us deserve and value. Libby Christie, Executive Director of the Australian Ballet, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I'm going to turn my feet into the 10 and 2 position, grab the big metaphorical watermelon and show you a plie that you will take back to David McAllister and say, I think I've discovered him. He's He's bald, he's a bit chubby, but he is the future of the Australian Ballet. Thanks for joining us today, Libby. Thank you, Adam.